1: of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sherry Greco-Rikus. Sherry is the co-founder and chief visionary officer of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, an independent RIA based in Skokie, Illinois, that oversees more than $800 million in assets under management for 350 client households. What's unique about Sherry, though, is After her life-changing experience that she went through, trying to get clear and articulating her own most important values, she ended up creating a five-step maximizing the return on life framework for her clients to use, and then created what she calls her CFO family checklist as a form of living financial plan to help clients stay focused on not just whether they're on track with their financial plan, but that their plan is consistent with their values. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Sherry developed her five-prong maximize the return on life approach with clients and how she and the rest of the advisors in her firm iteratively build over time their CFO family checklist of planning issues to discuss with clients. How Sherry's firm uses the diamond team's approach to both more clearly establish roles for each team member and then outline the pathways for promotion to help them grow within the firm and how Sherry and her firm leverage their financial planning plus passive investment approach as a way to gain more referrals, including from other advisors who have higher asset minimums, by highlighting how their passive investment philosophy means a referrer will never get embarrassed by having the firm they refer to deliver returns that are significantly below benchmark, because by definition, Sherry's passive approach is to own the benchmark in the first place. We also talk about how Sherry was first inspired to create their Maximize Return on Life framework after attending a workshop for advisory firm owners where the attendees were prompted to find the values that mean the most to improving their own lives as business owners, which also helps Sherry rediscover what she values most. How Sherry leverages a weekly newsletter, social media, webinars, and her book all together to attract and connect with prospective clients. And the internal three times a week meeting structure that Sherry and her firm used to not only discuss client planning strategies as a team, but to also connect with one another and deepen team collaboration. And be certain to listen to the end, where Sherry shares the early struggles that she had in hiring and turnover, especially when the firm was so small that one person leaving could really pull everyone down. How Sherry eventually became comfortable with letting go of having control over all the aspects of the firm and found she didn't really have to touch every client relationship for them to get the quality experience she wanted every client to have. And the challenges that Sherry faced by having taken on every client they could, regardless of fit, early on when the firm was just anxious to get any clients that they could. But how it came to the point that eventually Sherry found the frustration was dragging down her own team members and that it was better to lift team morale by just starting to refer out the bad fit clients instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sherry Greco-Rikus. Welcome, Sherry Greco-Rikus, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: It's great to be here, Michael. Looking forward to it.
1: I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and and talking about what I think is that that interesting dynamic that virtually any advisory firm hits as as it continues to grow, where you you get to this point where you you like you can only handle so many clients yourself before you have to start adding other advisors and essentially beginning to, to scale the business beyond yourself, and it gets really hard for a lot of advisory firms because. You know, like as as a founder, you got a certain way of doing it, of how you handle clients, of how you service clients, is like how you do the planning process and interact with clients. And it's really challenging when that has to go beyond you, and you're going to hire other advisors. And then these these questions just start to bubble up, like, "Well, are they going to service clients the the way I service clients, the way I do it, or like how do I teach them to to do it?" And it it creates this pressure on us as as advisory firm founders to figure out how do you systematize the process of what you built to be able to teach each other's to do it and and I know you have been going down that road for the past couple of years in particular of how do you kind of turn what you've done for years with clients into a a, a system a thing a, like a structure that you can teach and train other advisors in and bring them into the firm so that clients get that consistent experience even if it's not you personally so I'm just I'm, I'm excited to talk about what it's like to go down that journey when you start trying to figure out how to take all the things in your head about how you do financial planning for clients and turn it into a system so you can teach other people people how you do financial planning for clients so share with us just some of that journey like what have you been working on in recent years as you have hit this crossroads
2: Yeah. So, Michael, I want to bring you back a few years. Um, It was 2019. Our firm was about 500 million. Uh, We had about seven people and we had had a lot of success through the years. We started the firm in 2005 and we had grown, grown, grown. And all of a sudden we got to a point where things had leveled off a little bit. And as founders, um, we have great. We had great advisors. We, they're still with us, but. Um... The founders were starting to get a capacity. David Rapport and I started the firm. Uh, we have another principal who's actually my husband, uh, Stephen Rikus, but um, he was starting to get a capacity. And we, our clients loved us. We loved our clients, but we reached a crossroads is how can we bring that same level of service, the same expertise that the advisors currently are doing and grow the firm. Schwab has a strategic planning um, session that we went through uh, two full days, left the office, Went through that. Um, I had gone to, obviously, a bunch of industry seminars, but one of the recent ones I had gone to was a partner of ours, uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors, and we had a session on practice management, and one of them was on articulating your values. And I went to that session thinking, boy, I know my values. This could be a waste of an hour and a half, but I'll go with the flow. (laughs) Oh, fine. I'll do your workshop thing. (laughs) Uh, they wanted us to leave our phones at the door. There were candle lit in the room. We had to dress comfortably. And we started it with just a little meditation. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm a type A run, run person, but I went with the flow. You're going to say,
1: so, all right, so I'm just like, you're you're coming as a type A and there's candles and meditation. Okay, so. Yeah,
2: and, I, and I think I might have like opened an eye when I wasn't supposed to. Um, and then they passed out the list of values values and I started going through it. And um, I actually have it on the website, the same our website, the same list of values. And they said, pick 30 right off the bat and you circle them. And then you went down to 20, 10 and five. And all of a sudden I looked at this list and I had been living my life by these values, but I never really articulated it or knew it. And it was family, it was community, it was health, um, adventure was on the list. And I was in the process of running a big um, capital campaign at my synagogue, putting a lot of time, people always asked me. You know why are you doing this? And then when I looked at the list, I realized it was community, it was family, it was giving back, and I was living my values. But this light bulb went on, and I started thinking: if I have never articulated my values and I'm living them, has every has have other people done that? So um, I brought it back to the firm and I had our firm go through this little I only did it for about a half hour but this meditation and values and again I had you know Dave my partner was kind of a naysayer my husband was like what are we going to do are we really doing this the staff went <laughs> it but by the time they so, were done, so
1: everybody was was kind of as quintessential type A as you were going they, into the room saying were. like candles and meditation the values exercise really
2: and not spiritual at all <laughs> um, and I just was so excited about it and all of a sudden Dave like looked at me and he said health I spend money on all these other things I spend time on all these other things but I'm not taking care of my health and he was sold and so we started thinking You know, so much of our industry is missing. You know, we're talking about numbers and planning, but really it's more about values and how people's values can help them make decisions on their retirement, on their spending or their time. And that's kind of when this maximize your return on life was born. And we really started incorporating this value. So going back to 2019, between the strategic planning, this whole concept with the values, we wanted to kind of rebrand ourselves. We redid our website and we came up with this maximize your return on life, a five prong approach, which I can talk about. But it like all came together and we had a big um, meeting meeting in December with all the staff where we kind of went through our vision. We called it the road to a billion. It was a five-year path to get to a billion. Um, we met with each of our staff to come up with individual business plans on how they were could contribute to the growth of the firm. We spent a lot of time with our advisors to come up with their ideal clients so that they could um, work with those clients and really try to grow their business with their ideal client. And we got everyone on board and it just became an excitement. And we started it, you know, January of 2020, which was probably a tough time to start, but everything's gone really well. Well,
1: well, it seemed like a great time to start in January of 2020.
2: (laughs) Yeah, little do we know. Um, but, you know, between getting everyone excited, uh, we upgraded our technology. And I we had actually done that in 19. And it was pretty amazing that when March 2020 came around with a flip of a button, we were able to everyone go home and, and work remotely. And that was only, you know, you, if, mm-hmm. if you want to grow, you have to spend money on process of people. And you know we upgraded the technology. Um, since then, we've hired five people. Uh, one of our um, people that have been with us fourteen, maybe fifteen years, Karen Asbrough. She's our now. She was running our operations. She's our dedicated COO. Uh, Dave is now our chief investment officer. I've got the title of chief growth officer and Steve and our other principal is wealth transfer. He had 20 years of estate planning experience. So by having this dedicated COO, it's, it's just really made decision process and moving things along a lot quicker as opposed to all of us just weighing in all the time and, and moving it forward and not making a decision.
1: Interesting. So I've got lots of questions there around because this like create no, it's fantastic. Like creating this pathway and some of the the like the staff and structural changes that that you made, as as well as sort of it, creating and institutionalizing this maximize your return on life framework. But but I actually want to take a, a a pause and even go one one step further back than that of just this this discussion around values and our art, and, and articulating your values that I I feel like is is out there for. A lot of people, and I think a lot of us, like we say, we have a good sense of our our values. If you at least put us on the spot in a moment, we can probably name a few of them. But I, I I'm struck that you're you're sort of talking about these like this breakthrough that you had, and then this breakthrough that Dave had in going through the 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 exercise with this this list of values and and picking off the list. Like, what what's the actual exercise that's creating these values insight? like breakthrough moments.
2: Yeah. And before you kind of go through this list, um, you know, we often ask some probing questions with our clients, as well as when I went to the seminar. And it's things like, what is something you used to do that you miss doing? Um, What kind of legacy would you like to leave? Um, People that you look up to, what are some of the qualities that they have? Um, I sometimes, you know, ask a question that, you know, if, the doctor told you, um, you had five years to live, but they'd be really, really good years. Is there a regret or something in your life that you would like to do now? Is there something on your bucket list? So, you know, the, the way that this works is you have to kind of get them out of the day to day and start thinking about some of these questions. And you know, when you go through the list, there's things like the one that really was very big for me was adventure. Um, when I was younger, I used to be so adventurous. I'd take all these adventurous trips and, and mountain climb and, and do all sorts of things. And then, you know, starting a business and having kids, you know, the trips were always their sporting events or visiting family. And so once I saw this adventure, um, I decided that I was going to start taking adventurous trips. So I've gone to Costa Rica and I've rappelled down a mountain. Uh, We've done some backroads trips. And I decided once a year I have to break out of my comfort zone and do one of these. And I think if I had done this exercise, I would have forgot about this value. So... Um, that, you know, that's, that's kind of how you have to go through this exercise. You know, I also ask questions like, what brings energy to your life? Uh, what achievements are you most proud of? Um, what are you willing to make the fewest compromises in? Uh, what legacy do you want to leave? So see, these are some of the probing questions that everyone is always running on this treadmill day to day that never takes the time to think about
1: and And so, have you literally created like your your list of probing questions in that in that context like is there a is there a standard list of questions or or something else you do at this point to take people through this values exercise?
2: yeah, actually, um, we'll talk about it I wrote a book, but the you know I have about eight probing questions in the book that I ask. Um, the readers to go through before they look at the list. And it's pretty much the ones we we just talked about. Um, One other one is what areas of your life do you protect the most? You know, maybe it's family, maybe it's community, you know. And so, um, you know, I had someone that looked at this and, and power was one of their values. You know, everyone's values are different. And I work with clients after COVID because your values may have changed. You know, they change as you get older. They change based on circumstances. And um, I have my clients kind of write these values down and use it as a guide. And so when they want to spend money, I say, does it fit in your budget? Is it aligned with one of your values? If it's yes, go for it. If it's not, maybe this wasn't the right place to spend your money. And the same with time. You know, time is a limited resource. And, you know, we all have the clients that spend without guilt and we have the ones that are guilty when they spend. Uh And I think by having this framework, it takes kind of a roadmap for them to decide where to spend.
1: Interesting. So, so fit this for us in this broader picture of you. So you went to the DFA event, you go through this values exercise, it, you know, creates this realization moment for you of, impact that can be had with clients when they get clear on this. So you bring it back to the partners and like David and the others go through it and it clicks for them and they're on board as well. And you start moving this direction saying, okay, we're going to make, I think you said it ultimately became your your five-prong approach to maximize your return on life. So, so what does that look like in, in practice now? I mean, like what is the five-prong approach in your firm that you take clients through?
2: So we call it, you know, the maximized return on life. The first prong is organization. So sometimes I even, we call it the 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 magic bag. We tell our clients to bring, our prospects, bring everything, your insurance policies, your disability policies, all your bro- brokerage statements. Sometimes we get them in envelopes that, you know, haven't even been open. But the first prong is to really, get clients organized so they know what they have because power, um, knowledge is power. And we have designed our own, it's about 15 page, what we call the CFO family checklist. And that is a standard checklist that every client um, we work with, we complete. And through that checklist, you know, it starts with their goals, their asset allocation, financial planning, uh, their tax information, their estate information, titling, um, what is, you know, what uh, Roth conversions, um, IRAs, making sure all the beneficiaries are correct. We look at disability insurance, life insurance, health insurance. So, so every is that
1: essentially your version of a, of a data gathering form just to collect all yeah, of the client information?
2: We, yes, but we don't have the clients complete it because they never do. So we literally gather all the information and we fill out this CFO checklist. And again, things every time we meet, we bring this CFO checklist. And as a group, um, we decide what are your 90-day goals? Maybe they haven't had their estate plan looked at in 10 years. Maybe they need to work out a budget. So we work with the client. And we say, what are the things you want to work on the next 90 days? the next six months, the next year, and we kind of have that list. Then it's almost like uh, they're in school, you know, the week or two before the meeting, they're sometimes scrabbling Mm -hmm. around getting some things done. But then we continually go through the list. So the first prong is getting clients organized, they know what they have. And also, it's important that both spouses understand this, because sometimes we find that there's one partner that understands everything takes control, but we want both partners to know what's in there, um, what is what is the disability insurance, what is the life insurance, things like that so so,
1: so this sort of family checklist. Data gathering process, the idea here is you you don't give the checklist to clients for them to to go through. They're literally coming into this first meeting. they bring they bring everything, like they get, bring all the documents, all the all the policies, all the paperwork. And I guess and you you start going through that paperwork and like and asking them the questions from the checklist and essentially uh, you know doing that as the process to facilitate the data gathering uh, uh, of all the information that you need.
2: Yes. And to be clear, um, we don't do this for prospects. For prospects, we show the checklist, we show them what we would do, we kind of show them a sample. And then once they become a client, um, you know, we kind of give them a lit. we just say, give us everything. And if we're missing something, we go back. But the first meeting when we meet, you know, with the clients, once they sign our investment policy, um, agreement, I mean, our investment advisory agreement, then we do all the work, but it, um, we try to make it as easy as possible for the clients. And it's not unusual that even a year after we work with them, they find a life insurance policy they forgot about, or, you know, they have a benefit at work that they didn't realize. But, um, the beauty of this is that it's standard. So, You know, as a principal who oversees many clients, I can go into the meeting. I know exactly where everything is if a discussion point comes up. You know, if they want to refinance a mortgage, I know there's a page with all the information on their mortgage. If they have a liquidity um, need, I know I could see if they have a home equity loan, I can see. You know, everything is right in front of me and um, that way, you know, we are looking at everything and then, you know, we obviously we quality control the reviews before, but the clients love this checklist. Um, They just really look forward to going through it. And to tell you the truth, we spend 80% of our meetings on this checklist and maybe ten to fifteen going over performance because we're a passive firm, and clients are getting the market, and you know we go over their asset allocation and things like that. But this is what's really important.
1: So help me understand a little bit further. I like guess just what's what's on like what's on this checklist or how it's presented? Because as you were describing it originally, I was I, like in my head at least I was envisioning a version of of a data gathering kind of form, or right? just where we're asking about tax info and estate. Info and titling and goals and assets and liabilities and so forth. But I I feel like what you're describing now like is something different or more or goes beyond what at least I would think of as as like a a, a custom design data gathering form.
2: Yeah, it's not da- data data gathering. It's much more comprehensive. So you know, we start at the beginning, all the information about the client, the kids, um, where, you know, their ages and things like that. Then the first page is pretty much, we have an investment policy statement for each client, but it basically gives the broad range of their asset allocation. Um, then the next page, we talk about liquidity needs. So, you know, are, are they thinking of a second home or um, what are they looking for? So a lot of that, you um, is liquidity needs. Then we have a whole section on financial planning, which is actually this the third prong of the maximize your return on life, where we have like a snapshot of the financial plan that they did. And then we do a cash flow analysis. You know, if they're retired, what income do they have coming in? What are they spending? How does that tie into the plan? Is the plan still valid? Do we need to make changes to the plan? So that whole section is really on the financial planning. Then we have a whole section on taxes. You know, what carry forwards do you have? What's your effective rate? Are we in the right vehicles based on your rate? Who's your accountant? Uh, Should we do some year end tax planning? Is it a good time to do a Roth conversion? Uh, Are you retired, but you're not taking your minimum distribution? Should we accelerate income? You know, we're not doing their tax return, but we're doing, we're guiding on that. Then we have a whole section on the estate planning. And sometimes um, the beauty is Stephen, my husband who works at the firm, um, was estate planning attorney. So we flowchart their estate plan. Who's their current beneficiaries? What ages do the kids get the money? Uh, Who's their health care power? So we go through all that.
1: So this almost feels like the financial plan output as opposed to the like the data we're gathering in.
2: Well, you have to gather the data to have all this, but that's okay. the initial step. So we we don't, you know, we don't just gather the estate plan and say we have it. We look at it. We discuss it. We make sure that this is still what the clients want. We make sure everything is titled properly, including outside assets, 401ks, things that maybe, you know, we're not managing, Uh, maybe private partnerships. You know, we look at all that. Then we have a whole section on other assets. Some of our clients, you know, are investing in in a friend's fund or things like that. So we want to make sure that's coordinated. Then we have a whole section on all of their insurance, um, liability, uh, their disability. So it's, it's extremely comprehensive.
1: So you're, you're, you're populating it as a checklist as you're gathering information, but then it like becomes a living version of their plan going forward, which means you keep pulling the same thing back out to look at it, to revisit it, to edit it, to revise it as, as their yeah. life changes. Is that a fair characterization?
2: It, exactly. And things as they get older. So I've got clients that are, you know, turning 65. So we will have a whole section, you know, on Medicare planning. Um and again, it, it may be that We've done the work, but we can list who is the providers, who's your Part D, what are you paying? Um, You know, there's also Irma, you know, maybe they had a big income one year and they need to go back and get their premiums reduced because their income, you know, they go back two years. The clients love it because we go through this whole checklist, we come up with the two or three things. And then we kind of send an email after, you know, saying these are the things that you're going to work on. This is what we're going to work on. And then we use Salesforce to put tasks up for each of these so that we can follow up with the client. And let's say we want to do a Social Security analysis and they have to get their Social Security statement. We might follow up in three weeks and say, you know, have you gotten your statement? We'd like to do the analysis. So the CFO checklist changes as clients get older, as their goals change and things like that.
1: Interesting. So, so in terms of this first meeting, this first like or organizing meeting, I guess I'm just try to visualize how this happens. So clients come in with the you know the the well I guess I was saying the proverbial or literal shoebox of like right. envelope, envelopes and policies and documents. Here it is, Sherry. I don't. I don't even know all the stuff in there. I haven't even opened all these envelopes. And through this first meeting, you're you're going through that paperwork and you're asking them questions to start populating the the CFO checklist.
2: It, it goes back a little further than that. So for every new client, we have a roadmap, an onboarding roadmap. So once they sign our investment advisory agreement, then we usually, um, you know, set up a secure link for them. To just to forward everything before that first meeting. So what
1: what do you use for like secure links and file transfers? We're
2: using a Dropbox right now, but we are looking into some other secure links. So we have them send everything. Um, Then we also, in the meantime, probably transfer the assets. So that first meeting is to finalize the proposal on the asset allocation and what we're going to do. And then we start, going through that CFO checklist. And of course, we're not going to do everything the first meeting, but the first meeting is just to make sure we have everything we need, everything is right, um, and maybe we start on one or two items. So we start to get that checklist populated before that first meeting. So, the first meeting, we finalize the proposal, we make sure we have all the correct information. And then usually about four to six weeks later, after we received everything, we implement the proposal, we have the first client review meeting. And we've also standardized our client review meetings, which... Uh, I can tell you, you know, basically um, we use Black Diamonds. So they, you know, we have the performance reporting. So the agendas, usually we go through the asset allocation, uh, the investments, the performance reporting, and then we go into that CFO checklist where we spend a lot of the meeting. And then we also have, you know, market update commentary if, you know, markets are tough or people want to just talk about the markets and things like that. And it's just a living document that just grows and right. grows because everyone is different, you know, some people have stock options, some have stock appreciation rights. Whatever right. their situation is, we put that in the CFO checklist. A uh, charitable giving, we spend a lot of time on donor-advised funds it's using right. IRAs. All that is in the CFO checklist.
1: And like, just where did this CFO checklist document come from? Is this an entirely a thing that you made yourselves? Is this like a template that you bought or built on from somewhere else? Like, where did this come from?
2: It just came over time. You know, it used to be three pages and four pages. Our whole firm meets every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we talk about interesting planning situations with our clients. And if something comes up, someone will say, you know, we should really add that to the CFO checklist. So then we add another element to the CFO checklist. But it makes it um pretty efficient for the associates because it's the same list for everyone and they know exactly where to pop all the information in. Right. And it's just been a living document that we've developed over time on our own. And our clients all call that their CFO checklist. They'll be, oh, now it's time to go to the CFO checklist. Look at how proud I am. I did this. I got this done. Or right. thank you so much. I didn't realize we could have done something different. So it's, it's really been a great value add to the clients.
1: So the whole firm meets Monday, Wednesday, Friday to talk about client situations. So tell me so we, more about that meeting. Yeah.
2: So we you know we started this during COVID. We used to have a Monday morning meeting and we the Monday morning meeting agenda was uh, we talked about the performance because we have centralized investment process, so every client has the same funds. They just have them in a different, you know, percentage right, based right. on their asset allocation yep. tax rate. So we talk about kind of the market and and how the funds are doing. Then we go through our prospect list. So we use Salesforce. So. We code all the prospects, uh, one through five, one being they said yes, two, they're deciding, three, we've given them everything they need, four, we're working at, and five is an initial introduction. And then we talk about it as a group because maybe we're having a challenge with one prospect moving forward. So the group discusses how we can move it forward. Uh, Then our COO will talk about any operation things that need to be addressed. Um, You know, if there's regulation changes like, you know, the newer regulation about transferring 401ks, um, if there's something going out. Um, to our clients we talk about. And then every week we send a newsletter out. So we talk to the group about what's on social media. So that's kind of our Monday agenda. Our Wednesday is where we just kind of talk about client meetings. Are there questions that people are getting that we um, should talk about a group? We keep a list of common questions and answers so that we're all kind of giving you know, we want mm. to give the Rappaport right, this yeah. capital management answer. So we talk about, you know, interest rates are rising. My bonds are down. Why is that happening? You know, things that clients are bringing up. Uh, just for example, today, we had a very interesting social security situation where, you know, we had a client who was in her like 67, but her ex spouse, she was divorced, was 61. And it's very complicated with the claiming strategies. So we have a dedicated uh, director of financial planning. So she talked about that. Uh, So we talk about either planning, client situations, and it's just a way for the group to get together. And then Friday, we call it Friday Fun Day. And we sometimes uh, just talk about our weekends. I might play a game, but it's just touching base. So this is, and we've gone to a hybrid with our office. So um, we have a kind of a a template that if you're less than a year with us, you're in the office five days, more than a year, um, you work two days from home. And so um, that way it just connects everyone together. Um, and then we try to meet quarterly as a group in person. But, you know, the meetings have just been really good and it's, you know, pretty and, casual. It's on Zoom and we just talk about things.
1: And how long do the meetings run that you bring everyone together?
2: Uh, half hour, not very long. We do it at a 10 because we feel that people need to get in and they want to answer emails and get up and running. So uh, we do it at 10 o'clock.
1: Okay. All right. Very cool. So I get, so the, so the first meeting is a combination of you're trying to get through asset allocation proposal to make sure that dollars can get invested since they've They've been in motion once the client said yes, they were coming on board, and you don't want like cash dollars to sit idle. And then the second part is you're at least starting to either fill out this, the family, a CFO family checklist, or may have pre populated some of it from whatever they were uploading. And then you get to at least continue the conversation and get more data points and clarify the more of the checklist in that first meeting. Exactly. Is that fair characterization? Then the goal, exactly. So then the goal at the end is. We've at least gotten a bunch of the checklist. We've gotten your sign off for a asset allocation proposal, and we've set some initial ninety day, six month, one year goals of what we're going to be working on. So we we kind of are, are know and are agreed on our marching orders from here.
2: Exactly, exactly. Okay. And 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 the meetings going forward are pretty similar. I mean, we go you know the agenda is yes, pretty sir. similar, but we just dive deeper into some of these uh, CFO checklist items.
1: I was going to say. So then, so what? So what's meeting number two?
2: It just pretty much continues. So meeting number two, we go through performance. But, you know, the CFO checklist drives it. And Stephen might spend uh, 20 minutes flowcharting their estate plan, you know, because we got the copy of it and going through that. Or we might have done a social security analysis.
1: Because at this point we tend to be going deeper into whatever they said was their ninety day
2: exactly goal,
1: whatever whatever they had highlighted. Right. That's the thing you end up going in further. So they said they're anxious about social security or their estate plan or whatever it is. So Don't advise
2: fund or whatever whatever they want. Right. So um, yeah, so that's kind of what the meetings um, really continue with, and and you know we just get deeper and deeper. When they first come in, there's that stress you see on everyone's face. And by the second or third meeting, it's the, I could just see the stress yeah. leave their faces because they feel organized. They feel that someone's paying attention. And, you know, we always say we work with clients that, you know, enjoy life and want to pursue their hobbies or their work or, you know, spend time with their families. They don't want to be in the trenches worrying about all this. Let us Work with right. them and get it in front of them. Hmm. So that that's the first prong of the five prong approach to maximizing your return on life. But that prong continues. But the first one is you can't even start working with the client till you fully understand them and, and get them organized.
1: So then, what's the second prong?
2: The second is the values. We talk about that in every meeting, and that's when we kind of show them the values list. You know, pretty early on, um, even in the the prospect, the way we have. Kind of a set prospect agenda, but we talk about the values then. And um, it's just been so interesting. We had a couple that came in and said they spent more time picking the color of their car than ever thinking about their values. And, you know, we do get people kind of like Dave, you know, they like yep. the values, we want to talk about it. And then I can't get them to stop talking about it. You know, they, <laughs> they, oh, remember, honey, we did this because that was our value. And, they don't have to be grand. I, I had a client that, that loves to cook but hates to prep. And I said, you know, you can buy prep vegetables. You know, you can go to the grocery store. She says, why should I pay $3 for chopped onions when I can get it for 85 cents? And I said, but... Is that your value? So now she texts me every now, you know, I I just maximize my return on life. I brought the, you know, prepped vegetables. I you know, I had a client that had a lot of money and her daughter had a baby and she was sleeping on the couch and she, you know, was in her 70s and had backache and they were fighting. And I said, Isn't there a hotel close by? Oh, but I can sleep on our couch. Why should I pay for the hotel? I said, you know, isn't family your value? Isn't family harmony important to you? And she now stays at a hotel and everyone's happier. I'm sure if the the daughter-in-law knew me better, she would embrace the situation. So, you know, we try to work with our clients not just to enhance the returns, but enhance their life. And, And that whole values piece, you know, even talking about it brings it to the forefront with the clients.
1: So I guess I'm just wondering literally like how you get to the, the values or handle that conversation with them. I mean, is, is, it, is it a checklist? Is it an exercise? Is it the series of probing questions? Like just how do you literally do this with a client?
2: I mean, it's a little more fluid, I think. You know, I think just by having this brand that we're going to maximize your return on life, most people are bought into that and they want to do that. You know, our discussions are always things like, you know, this COVID has been really tough. We'd love to buy a second home in Florida, but can we afford it? And that might mean that we can't take trips, or it might mean that we might have to get a different car. And these are all decisions that every client often struggles with and has to make. And we try to bring it Back to the values, like what's most important to you? You know, my dad, there's a quote in the book at the very cover of the book. My dad said, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. So pick what's most important. (laughs) And I have said that to my clients. Um, I just want to bring you back to when I was 16. I'll I'll be pretty quick with the story. But I had gotten my first job. I had some money and Bruce Springsteen was coming to town. And I also wanted a pair of fry boots. And I thought, you know, if I go to my dad and say, "I I don't have enough money for both, what should I do? I thought he'd say, yeah, go to Springsteen. I'll buy you the fry boots. But he didn't. He says life is choices. And he said, you can have anything you want. You can't have everything. So what's going to make you happy and what's most important to you? And I ended up going to the Springsteen concert. I've been kind of a experienced type of person with my money. Others would have bought the fry boots. But that quote is stuck with me and i have said that to clients over and over and over again and they repeat it back to me everyone has a different amount of resources it's not what you have it's what you spend and how you spend it and so this whole maximizing return on life really brings it to the forefront
1: so where does this values conversation come in in the process
2: it just comes up when when there's a major decision someone has to make, you know. Maybe they've been a lawyer for thirty years and they like to go part time. Well, why do you want to go part time? You know, what is, what is it the value that you want to spend with your family? It might mean uh, that you might have to downsize your home. Maybe your value used to be status and you wanted that home. So whenever there's a critical financial decision to make. We really try to dig deep with if, if there's a couple with both spouses, are they on the same page? Maybe one wants the bigger house and one doesn't want to work as much. But we try to bring this the, the group together, focus on what's important, what the values are, and make a decision. And sometimes we say they have to think about it. You know, they have to talk together and say, you know, what is most important to us? And so it just it's like I said, it's very fluid. But by mentioning it, bringing it to the forefront, it's brought into the conversations.
1: And so then what's the third prong for you?
2: The third is the full financial plan. So um, that, again, ties into the CFO checklist. So we've gotten them organized. We've got them thinking about their values. And when we do the financial plan, um, we, we spend some time talking about things like, you know, when do you want to retire? What would retirement look like for you? You know, is it something maybe you want to start a little business on the side? You want to volunteer? You might want to go of counsel. We we find a lot of people today don't want to fully retire. They just want to work less and they want to have more time to do things. So we can quantify this for people and we do that all the time. But the other question is, what will you do in retirement? Where do you want to be in your retirement? And often they've never discussed it. And so when we meet with the clients, especially if it's a couple, like these light bulbs come up. And we also talk about their fears. A lot of them have a fear of not having a paycheck they might have to help a family member, they fear their own health. And so, you know, we talk about all these as part of the planning. So the third prong is the financial plan, which we use as a guide. Uh, We obviously, like many other planners, we don't just put it on the shelf because things change. We use Monte Carlo, we use MoneyGuy Pro. Uh, We're very happy with the planning tool that they have. And it's pretty user friendly for the client. And we can model four different scenarios. And clients. Really like having that plan, but they like the soft side of our discussions as well.
1: So, where does that like financial plan and money guide? It, it... Experience come in in the process sounds like like first meeting you're you're getting sorted out on asset allocation you're going through the organization process by the second meeting maybe even already talking a little bit about performances dollars have been invested you're you're refining the CFO checklist and you know whatever their ninety day urgent goal thing was that they wanted to tackle so wh- when does like money got in the full financial plan come back into the picture
2: yeah I mean every client's different some clients. You know they want it right away. I wish they would have come to us earlier yeah. because it 's better to do a plan, but you know they 're in their sixties they don 't love their job they really they 're coming with this answer. They want to know how long they need to work, what the resources would be, so we do the plan. But for most clients, we really want to get to know the client a little better. We want to get some of the urgent things like titling making sure, you know, the insurance and all that is is what is needed. Um, and then usually probably about six months, maybe the third or fourth meeting, we do just a planning meeting. So that meeting, we try to just talk about the financial plan. You know, we don't bring in all the performance and the CFO checklist. We just want the full attention to the plan. We have our own um, retirement ready workbook. And again, we don't give it to them because they don't fill it out but it has a bunch of questions on there. It has a lot of different scenarios we can do, and we just kind of give them um, this. It also has the list of values that we can review again. So we have a a good 45-minute to an hour planning discussion, and that helps us to uh, formulate the plan.
1: So do you get issues or worries where... You know, you've gone through an earlier process of setting an asset allocation proposal and implementing them, and then you get deeper in the planning process, and like it starts steering you towards a different portfolio or a different allocation. Like, does that does that come up where the deeper plan changes what the original asset allocation proposal was?
2: You no, know, it it rarely, really has because you know we we can pretty set the asset allocation and often you know clients are coming in with cash and we might be dollar cost averaging so we can change it if we need to but um rarely have we seen a time that we've we've had you know i, I the the inputs really on the plan is is spending and that's really um that's really the blank look that we get you know when we start to as part of our cfo checklist we ask what they're spending and that's kind of They sometimes come up with different numbers and that's a blank look. So that's why we kind of take some time because we really want them to, you know, we work with them on budgets and really try to figure out what is their spending, what are they going to need. And that's, you know, probably uh, a prudent thing to do. But rarely do we end up changing the allocation um, based on the plan. Again, we might change it going forward as they get older and things like that. Uh, if, they have, if they're if they working, it may be one allocation when they decide to retire. You know, we might change it down the road. But um, initially, we find that, you know, six to nine months out is fine to do the plan.
1: And then what's the fourth prong of the plan?
2: The fourth is how we implement the asset allocation. And we... Um, have some core principles on our invest. It's really the investment side of our business. And we want our clients to understand the core principles. And we go through this during the prospect meetings. But the first one is that this asset allocation will drive success. And that's a big decision that we'll make together. Uh, the second is that we're long-term. We're not going to be the firm that calls you up and tactically... Gets into cash. Um, you know, we want them to know that this is a long term. Um, we believe diversification is important, so we will, you know, be in all the capital markets, international emerging, um, all the bond markets, international things like that. Um, the fourth, the fourth one is that costs. Um, And taxes matter. So as part of our investment process, we do overlay taxes and our investment strategy is very cost efficient. Again, it's passive and it's very tax efficient. And then the last core principle is let the markets work for you. And we Mm. just talk a lot about the advantages of a passive or indexed approach. And again, we want happy clients. So we don't want clients that are thinking we're the ones that are going to come up with ideas ideas and get them in IPOs and have single stock exposure. That's not who we are or what we're doing. We think that this is the best way to maximize their return on life. So we want them to understand. So that's the fourth prong. That's our investment strategy.
1: And then, and then what's the fifth prong?
2: The fifth is that it's ongoing monitoring and review. So we continually meet with the clients, we review portfolios, we read the CFO checklist. So it kind of comes full circle. So that's kind of the five-prong approach to maximizing our clients' return on life.
1: And so how do you like just how do you present this and talk the client through it or i guess i mean i guess i'm envisioning even more of the the prospect through it like how how are you presenting this out to prospects to say i don't know this is this is our our offering or this is our process or you know this is what we we do for you that you're going to give us your life savings and we're going to manage it for you uh, like how how is this presented in the marketplace with your maximize return on life framework
2: yeah. So it's, again, we've done almost all of this through Zoom. So we we have um, like two different prospect books. One is what we call, you know, some clients less sophisticated. And then we have another one that's, you know, a little more sophisticated, but we use a lot of pictures. So we have this prospect book and it's called Maximize Your Return on Life. And we have a pretty picture, you know, of a mountain. and And then we have the five prongs that we just mentioned. And then through the the first um, page is getting organized. The whole thing is we want them to say, I want this process, right? They want to hire us. So we show them the sample CFO checklist and we show them all the things that we would work with them with that. So that's, you know, the first part of the uh, presentation. Then the second part is we show the list of values and we talk about how we incorporate the values. So we kind of have a discussion with that. Uh, The third um, part of the prospect book, we actually show them uh, snapshots of what a full financial plan would look like. And we kind of have them envision what their plan would look like with us. And we kind of show them a sample of our planning tools and the Monte Carlo and and how it really can help guide. Um, The fourth, section of the prospect book is we talk about our investment strategy, we show why we believe in indexing, we show our partners that we use, we use Dimensional and Vanguard, we show um, kind of a, a sample of what a portfolio might look like so they can see the broad diversification, we might show them some asset allocation charts and just things, you know, just to get them thinking about that. And then the last section of the prospect book is we show them an example of what a client review would look like, you know, what we would meet, what we would show you, how we're very transparent. We would show you your performance, what you've earned, what you've added, what you started with. And, um, you know, that usually gives them kind of a flavor of what they can experience working with us. And, um, and,
1: and so this, the, as what you're framing as a prospect book, is is essentially like a standard, just like templated presentation of your of your offering and what you yeah. do. Like I'm I'm hearing it and sort of envisioning from the, the well, I guess like the pure asset manager world. Asset managers often have their their pitch book of like here's our investment process and our philosophy and some stuff about our performance and all the other things that that go in an investment pitch book. So feeling like this is sort of like a wealth management. PitchBook equivalent that just going through your your five domains and showing them the version that applies in the financial planning context. So we do get organized. Here's a sample of a family CFO checklist, and so we do a financial plan. Here's a sample of the plan. We do. We talk about values. Here's the list of values we're going to be talking about. We you know have a certain investment approach. Here's our core investment principles, and like you're just literally showing them the core pieces of each.
2: Yeah, and the goal at the end of the meeting is we say that um our goal is that we'd be happy to look at your current investment portfolios, kind of like a doctor, do a checkup. Tell you know, we would, you know, do a net worth for you and give you if you wanted to go to the second meeting, we would give you kind of our thoughts on, on things that we think, you know, are adding volatility to your portfolio things that we think we could do better, we might compare it to how we would manage. Um, And then we might take the CFO checklist and make it a touch more customized to them. Again, we don't want to do the whole planning and all the work, but we may, based on that initial meeting, highlight a few of the things that we would work with them over the next 90 days. So by having that second meeting, they kind of see our process, they see what they currently Mm -hmm. have. They also see, um, you know, what we would help with the CFO checklist. And then we also have a um, checklist at the end when uh, that we give if you're interviewing other advisors. And we have like 15 things on there. Of course, everything we do but are they also doing it? And so we kind of give them this checklist. If you're interviewing other advisors, here's a guide to kind of compare apples and apples as you interview other advisors. And so we kind of find that if they're committed and they give us their statements, and we have that second meeting, um, our close rate is 80 to 90%. And then we have basically everything to really, um, you know, they should be able to make a decision after that meeting. Um, and then we get them to sign the, you know, if they'll sign the investment yeah. advisory agreement and get the paperwork going. So okay. it's been a very successful uh, way of, of prospecting clients. And, and really, you know, we used to do full plans. We used to do a lot more work. But at the end of the day, do they really, you know, we're giving this for free. Do they really need all that information to make a decision? We think they can make a decision if they can kind of see what what our offering and value add is
1: we think it's an interesting framing to say you know we we used to do all these full financial plans for prospects to show our value and now we made a standardized prospect book that shows a sample of a financial plan and the value it creates and then they can decide if they want to hire us for the whole thing.
0: Right, right.
1: Sort of sa- sample, robust presentation of sample plan versus actually doing whole plan for prospect. And, and 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 so where did this prospect book, well, I guess I'm wondering two things. Like, wh- I mean, just what is it in practice? Like, is it, is it physically a book? Is this like a PowerPoint presentation? It's like, what what is it? And then how did you produce or create it in the first place?
2: Well, we internally created it. We've always had... Prospect books. But again, as we grew the firm, I'm not going to be at every prospect meeting. I used to be. And so we wanted to make sure that there was this um, Rappaport Rikers Capital Management kind of template. Um, But we also, uh, when we were meeting in person, um, we would do the meetings in our office and we would have it as a PowerPoint on a big screen. Because we find the minute you put a paper book in front of someone, they get nervous, they start flipping through the pages, they look overwhelmed, mm. but if you can just let them sit back, we look at the screen, there's a lot of graphics and pictures. It's it's It sounds like there's a lot of detail, but it really becomes a discussion. We get to know the client, they get to know us. And um, you know, sometimes we don't even open the book. We just talk about the process. But you know, we find people are visual, so on Zoom we do it through PowerPoint. Um, When we meet with the clients, we do it on the screen. I can't remember too many that we literally had the book. Now we will send send them the book after, um, just because they might want to flip through it. Sure. But we and we have you know pads of paper. They can take notes. But we just want them to be relaxed. It's you know it's stressful to go to an advisor to begin with. But we just want them at the end of the day to look at this and say, boy, this is what I want. And if they don't want it, and this is not what they're looking for, that's fine, because we want happy clients. And, and we'll call it a day. And that's what we always say, you know, this is what we offer at the end of the day. If this isn't what you're looking for, that's fine. But we just want you to understand what the maximized return on life process is going to be.
1: And so what's the pricing? What's the fee structure for, for the firm and, and doing all this for clients?
2: Yeah, so we charge uh, 1% on the first million, uh, three quarters on the next 2 million, 50 basis points on the next 2 million, and then 25 basis points over 5 million. To get the full CFO family services, uh, we begin at a million dollars. So that's our minimum. Okay, so minimum, you know, a, fi- a, a million, five is million is the minimum for you the, now. Yeah. So just, you know, $5 million client is going to be at 70 basis points any $3 million is going to be at about 83 basis points. And because the funds we use are passive, you know, they end up being maybe 15 basis points, you know, like a 60-40. And so part of when we ask for this financial checkup, we often do a fee analysis for them because they think they're not paying anything, but we're showing that their funds are at one and a half and the turnover, you know, is at 20% and things like that. So we kind of do a whole analysis to show them what they have, and you know, we know our fees are not the lowest. We know they're not the highest, but we feel that the value we provide is is right in line.
1: And how do you actually do that comparative analysis of you know what what they're currently paying versus uh, you know versus your offer? How do you?
2: Well, we can usually um, we can look in the internal mutual fund fees, and then we usually will ask them if they know what they're paying. They usually don't. So we can ask them for like a quarter end statement and it'll usually have, you know, the fees on there. So we can kind of analyze it that way. Um, So, you know, it's, it's very tricky, our business, and it's not transparent. And then there's could be trading costs. So we try to educate them, you know, to really, it's not what you earn, it's what you earn after taxes and fees.
1: Right. And, and how do you think about just this, this world of um, fee compression, pressure on value, you know to be charging one percent for passive portfolios, but then coupled with all of the financial planning work that you do, like how do you talk about fees and pricing and you know the value of what you're what you're getting for what you're paying for how does how do you flow through that with clients?
2: I feel the value is is definitely there I mean I've had through my career, a few examples. Um, When I I was at another big uh, money management firm and a friend of mine, you know, didn't have the minimum. And I said, you know, you could just go to Vanguard. And I actually showed the funds that this person could do. And they ended up being our first client when we started the firm because people just don't do it. They get emotional, they get busy, they don't manage their affairs. And and so it's not just, you know, yes, we're passive. And sometimes people say, well, you know, how do you earn your money being a passive? You're not outperforming the market, and I'm saying, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the people underperform the market. So I'd rather just be at the market. Uh-huh. But if I can change their lives, like what is one percent worth when they can go to bed at night, feel good about their portfolio, feel good that their that their family is going to be taken care of, that that they're true to their values, that they're that they have a plan, they have a roadmap. They they know what the future is going to look like. What's that worth? We we rarely get complaints about about the fees because you know we're in line with everyone else. I always say. You know, we're number one. If you could do it yourself, you know, go to Vanguard and and build a build a passive portfolio. But can you do it? Will you do it? Are you gonna make sure you're claiming your social security strategies right? Are you gonna be donating tax efficiently? Um, are you, you know, we help we help their children. You know, we we do multi generations. We don't just work with you know the parents. We have the children, the grandchildren. Our friends become clients. Our clients become friends. But It really, it it becomes a full holistic way of helping them.
1: And do you worry as you look out to the future about dangers of fee pressure, fee compression?
2: I don't. The people that come to us that have been doing it themselves, they'd be happy to pay 3% based on what the results would have been. I just think that um, that's why it's so important for us to keep the level of service very high and keep the value add very high for our clients. I'm maybe I'm an outlier, but I'm really not concerned because you know there's a lot of people that that need services, and we don't need to have all of them. We just need the people that will value the service that we provide.
1: So where do clients come from for you?
2: Um, yeah, we track that. Uh, we've. Over the la- again, through the years, um, my dad was my mentor we were We worked together in the banking business, and he always said to me, "The last person seen is the next person getting the business, and everyone 's a client they just don 't know it so <laughs> what we 've tried to do is um, we've tried st- we 've tried to target our marketing and stay in front of our referral sources, our clients and, and our personal networks. So part of this road to a billion that we started in 19, we really upgraded our marketing. Um, and so we do a weekly newsletter. Uh, we have, we're very active on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. We've offered webinars. Um, you know, we're getting two to 300 visits to our website. I mean, a lot of them are going directly to our blogs or webinars or things. But um, if I have to think, I, I probably think half of our business comes from our clients, which... Um, that's another thing that when we meet with clients we I bring up and we say you know if you're if you enjoy our process of maximizing your return on life, do you have people that we might be able to help maximize their return on life and so um that's been a a, a great way through clients. Um, just our personal networks, you know, our referral sources, uh, we also get to know the professionals, um, we get to know the attorneys of our clients, we get to know the accountants, and we often hear from accountants like you're the you know, you called us to do a Roth conversion, you called us to accelerate income, um, they, they're very impressed with what we do so some, you know, we get referrals from them. And I get referrals from some very large advisors that have like $10 million minimums. And they Mm. really feel very comfortable with our planning, but they feel very comfortable with our passive approach because they're not going to be embarrassed that they sent them to someone that did really well or really poorly. And so um, we hmm. get a lot of 2 to $10 million clients from a few, a few big firms in the city in Chicago that I don't want to mention who they are, but... Um, that feel that we're their go-to, and it's like well, me. I, I have a million-dollar minimum. I have a go-to for people under the million, so um, that's I, been a big source of our referrals.
1: Well, I'm struck as well, just that that framing that you know what one of the benefits of a more passive approach from a referral source end is one of the things refers are always going to be anxious about is do I do I refer you a client? Who then has a you know a bad investment outcome because that's egg on my face if I if I referred you in and if if you're a passive advisor I don't have to worry about uh getting getting embarrassed ah uh, with. With some bad investment outcome, I didn't see coming because you 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 can't underperform that much if you're passive, and, right, and, that, and that's also, comforting for them from like a de-risking perspective.
2: Right, and they also believe you know if you've got ten million, you could do private equity, you could do hedge funds, you can get right. into these private. But they 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 kind of think you know if you're one to ten million, you should be impassive. You know, <laughs> you don't have enough money to be getting into these things at lower costs. So, um, so that's been a big um, area. And so um, that's really been our organic growth. Another firm merged into ours. It was a sole practitioner who was using Dimensional. We got introduced uh, through them and he joined us the January of this year. And so he is gonna slowly transition and retire. But that was our first kind of merger, although it wasn't really a merger. It was just kind of adding him as an advisor and bringing some of his clients over. So that was exciting for us. Um, But I do, um, this marketing initiative, we really started again in 2020 around the same of COVID. But, um, you know, we are seeing people out of the blue that I haven't talked to in a while are calling up with referrals. And I think Mm -hmm. it's because you're in front of them all the time. Yeah. And um, and they like what we write. We create our own content. Uh, we do use some things from 20 over 10. We use some dimensional, we use some Vanguard, but um, each of our employees try to write two blogs a year. So I had one of my employees just got married and she talked about budgeting for a wedding. Um, another um, employee's uh, son was going to college she talked about setting a budget for a college and what you should look for and the different kind of you know mm. plans you can have in college so so
1: every team member has to write two articles per year
2: They don't have to but they do and okay. we've got an uh, we have an outsource editor that will review them and um yeah so you know I write a lot I probably you know almost every week I write some kind of article Um, you know, some of the most popular ones, you know, are, uh, Tears and fears. I wrote one about my daughter who started her first job and she called me up. She never asked my opinion and said, I've got this 401k. What should I do? And I said, well, you should go in the target fund 2060. Uh, and she said, well, what does that mean? I'm going to earn 60%. I go, no, that's that's the year that you might retire. And she's like, no, 2060. So, you know, it's uh, it, it was just kind of, um, you know, tears and fears, but things like yeah. that people relate to.
1: So, as you started this road, road to a billion vision you like you had said a lot of it was getting input from the team about how's everybody going to contribute to growth. I guess i 'm wondering, like what were the new growth initiatives or things that that you started putting in place
2: Well, the first thing that we did was we started um, implementing something called a diamond approach. So we, um, through the diamond approach, the top of the diamond was the principals, the middle is what we call lead advisors, Um, the bottom quarter is our associates, and then the bottom um, of the diamond is our operations. So we centralized our trading, we centralized our investment management process, we upgraded all of our processes, um, you know, we have template emails that go out to clients, you know, we did everything we could to make it the Rep Port Rikus management, capital management system. And then, um, you know, for years, um, and like many of us, I thought, you know, I had to handle the clients on my own. I'm the only one that could handle these clients. I've had some of these for 20 years. You know, they're used to my level of service. And it was really hard to go to this team approach. So what we decided is every client would have a principal. They would have a lead advisor that would kind of be there day to day, and they would have an associate. And so that gave uh, Dave as our CEO more time to really concentrate on the portfolio. It gave me more time to really mentor, work with our advisors to grow the firm and really um, implement this marketing initiative. It gave Stephen more time to work on this wealth transfer and be a resource for that. And then the dedicated COO gave Gave more time um, for all of us. Now we meet as a management twice a month. And the COO has an agenda and she does all the research and everything and we discuss, you know, if there's things we're going to change. But what I have found is the clients like this team approach. They've gotten very close with the lead advisors. I sometimes find them going to the lead advisor you know, before they come to me. Now, I'm always there for big, big decisions. I attend a lot of the meetings. Sometimes I attend for a little bit. Sometimes I stay based on the situation. They know I'm always there if they need me, but I don't need to be their primary contact. And that was really enlightening for me. And I struggled with that for many, many years. Um, You know, how could I have this woman that's, you know, got divorced 10 years ago, who I've lived with, have someone else involved in the relationship, but it works. And so this diamond approach has been great. Uh, Since 2019, we've hired five people. And the beauty of it is some of the lead advisors who are lead advisors now of clients, they were associates three, four or five years ago, and they sat in those meetings. So by the time they became a lead advisor for the client, they've already been in 10 meetings or 15 meetings. They know the client, they know the CFO checklist. So it just makes leveraging the firm and growing the firm a lot easier.
1: And so how do you figure out just how to do this, all, all of this restructuring, like, you know, everything from the actual process of, centralizing trading and investments and rolling out diamonds and like templating all of your uh, emails and and reassigning all the roles the firm I mean was this something you guys just came together and sorted out was this uh, hire external consultants was this like go through a, a training or coaching program like how did you come to this this level of changes?
2: It was kind of, you know, organic, little by little, you know, we, we realized, and we didn't do all this at once. So, I mean, we've been doing this for two and a half years now. So probably the first year we transitioned very few clients, we wanted to test it and see how this was, but a lot of it was natural because we promoted, um, two of our associates to lead advisors. You know, one got the C- CFP another she was ahead head of our planning, but she's now an advisor and, um, they both had been working with a lot of these clients. So we kind of picked a few clients that they were close with to begin with. And we, we started with that, um, you know dave is really good on on templates and processes so you know we have standard emails when we send money out we have you know processes now when we do cash flows we have to get verbals and things like that but it it takes being very diligent to set up the process because when you're kind of the sole practitioner oh we could do it this way we can do it that way you know we try to have very few exceptions if there's an exception it's got to be approved by one of the principals and so we've just Little by little, have have gotten this organization, and and every year we look at our books of business and see, you know, what would be the best team. When there's a new potential client come in, um, I'll let's say I'll talk to that client on the phone. I can usually tell um, each of our advisors kind of have their ideal clients, so I try to match. Lead advisor with that prospect, who I think will get along really well, and so the process just works.
1: And so you'd said part of these shifts were to free you up for new and different marketing initiatives. So what are the what are the new and different marketing things that you're that you're pushing now?
2: So we started um, again back around January 2020. Um we do a weekly newsletter um that typically will have a blog written by one of our staff and then usually it'll have some kind of market information. But we find um you know I do a Google Analytics, the things that get read the most are the soft side the, than then the market commentary. Yeah. Um we I've spent a lot of time with advisors really helping them to use LinkedIn, to add contacts on LinkedIn. Uh, in the beginning, we thought we could have our advisors post our content, but everyone's busy. So, my office manager now posts on Hootsuite uh, two to three posts a week for every one of our uh, employees. Um, we've added so, face-
1: you, so, you push out your blog content across all of the, the team member LinkedIn right. pages using right. Hootsuite?
2: So, once a week, she'll email me and say, um, we have we have it spread out in different teams because we don't want all the same content, you know, because a lot of people have the same context. But right. she'll send me the blog. She'll send me the little blurb she's going to use. She'll send me the hashtags. Takes me five minutes. I review it. I say fine. And then she sets it all up on Hootsuite.
1: Out of curiosity, just are, like, do you get any team members that say, no, no, that's like that's my that's my personal profile. Like, I don't. I don't want to have the company one, putting ad, things out.
2: <laughs> one advisor, because she likes to do things a little more creative, so we okay. like to go with that. But she still posts quite a bit. Okay. Um, and then so we for have most our-
1: of the most of the advisors, just they they were fine, and so you right. do it for them. And the one who objected, you let her do her own right. thing.
2: And then I've been coaching them, you know, with with trying to like things and post comments and like the comments you know, just to get a little more activity on LinkedIn. Um, we kind of had a contest at one point, you know, of getting more LinkedIn subscribers and things like that. Uh, we post on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook page. Um, we haven't done it quite as much, but during COVID, we tried to do monthly webinars and they we did those all in-house through Zoom. Um, we, you know, do our own content. We did a lot of young adult webinars. We we did some webinars for women. We did some investment Webinars, market update webinars. So we, we do that. Um, and then I spent the last year, I wrote a book called Maximize Your Return on Life. And, you know, I've been um, on TV and interviewed. And again, um, that's not just to bring business from people that read it outside, it's really to repost some of the articles with our own network. We have about 2,500 people subscribed. Uh, To our newsletter. And, um, you know, the book has just, I I would encourage. You know any of your listeners to write a book um, if, if they want to. I had so much fun with it and um, what I've done too is with our clients we've asked them if, if there's anyone that they'd like us to send the book to. We sent it to all of our clients and uh, all of our referral sources and so I'll write a personal note and send it and, and a couple times people have called us from that. And how would... do you
1: go about, like are you a writer type to literally just sit down and crank out a book
2: not really. I'm a creative type. So I come up with all of these uh, creative ideas, you know, I'll be at a function or I'll be watching TV and I'll be like, oh my God, that would be a great blog. Um, you know, I did a fun one with my husband. He wanted to buy a new bike and he was feeling guilty. Of, you know, he's a big, he rides, you know, one of those expensive bikes. He's a, he's a, one of those guys in, in all the um, biking gear. But so there was a chapter on should you feel guilty or not guilty and judge Sherry. And he had to come to me and plead his case. And it was aligned with his values and his budget. So, you know, I come up, it'll, you know, it'll be a Sunday afternoon. I'll come up with something. I'll scribble it down. I'm I'm not the best writer. Dave is great. He kind of takes my writing and, and can help finesse it a little bit. And then I do have an editor, but it's not like I sat down and wrote the book. It was a lot of different ideas And then I kind of pulled it all together uh, in the book. The book um, kind of starts with uh, having people think of their early memories of money because that really affects how they handle money. Then I have them identify their values then I have them really look at their spending with their values. I have them look at their time with their values. I have a section on maximizing the return on investments and financial planning. Then I've got maximizing your return on loved ones, how to teach your family, your children, leaving a legacy, passing on your values. And then I end it with gratitude. And then I challenge them about how they're going to maximize their return on life. So it's, um, that's kind of the framework of the book. And I turned it into a podcast that started a couple weeks ago. So, you know, I think by this diamond approach, it's allowed the same level, if not better service for our clients. I'm still involved. I still get involved with the clients, but I'm able to um, do what I enjoy best.
1: And, and so of all these different new marketing initiatives, I mean, you're talking about like company-wide social media and the webinars and the book, Like, what's, what's working for you at this point? Or you like know, what new what new things are working because you already had a lot yeah. of existing systems.
2: Again, you know they always said it would take about eighteen months. You know, and <laughs> you know because repetition and you want to be consistent. And I think it's all working and it's all we've been able again with everything we do at our firm we streamline it, but we've got a very efficient process. We outsource our newsletter, so we have a you know we send the articles. I have a marketing. Uh, a, graphic designer doing that we use uh, HootSuite for LinkedIn um, I've got uh, one of my friend's son graduated in videography and he puts all of our webinars on YouTube um, I have a podcast company helping me with the podcast I had a book publisher and an outside PR firm so you know we we've outsourced what we can but we're very efficient but uh, our give a has sense been- as
1: to what's what's driving results as you track results.
2: It's hard to say. I, I do think um, we start getting more client referrals, and I think the clients really enjoy getting this newsletter. Um, the book, definitely, you know, I could probably right. quantify three or four people that, you know, because of the book, right. you know, one one person I met with, I, what I do is when we get a potential client, we always send the book out before we might even meet with them. And one woman came in and said, I, I don't really even, you know, you sold me with the book you know, I'm ready to sign up. I just feel like like your philosophy is with mine. So, you know, I would think the book probably dri- drives it and, um, you know, the weekly newsletter, because it is, I, ch- you know, I'll get a, uh, when someone calls, I'll say, how did you find us? And they said, oh, I, you know, there was an article that really resonated me. You've been on my mind for a couple months and I finally decided to give you a call. So, you know, I think, th- I think it's the newsletter and I think it's the book.
1: So what, what surprised you the most about just Building building an advisory business.
2: Um, I th- I think it was that I don't have to touch every single client for them to get the quality that I'd like. Um, I you know we all think that we're the best and that we're the only ones that can do it. Um, I also have learned that promoting or or this. Growing our own seems, you know, we've we've tried a lot of different models through the years. We started the firm in 2005, you know, we we've hired some external people, but what we found is kind of growing our own is really the best model for us going forward. And um, really spending meaning, meaning
1: t- like hiring much younger people who are new to the right. industry and teaching them the whole thing from scratch
2: exactly and and what's really nice now is a lot of colleges have these CFP programs especially by us uh, Madison and U of I and we've been very fortunate to get amazing uh, people through through that we ha- you know we did ha- we have had some su- a lot of success with some external people that we've hired but. I think the probability is much greater to kind of grow uh, within. So those have kind of been some of the surprises and it's, it's not as easy as it looks, you know, you have to wear a lot of different hats. You're sometimes doing things you never thought, you know, you're making copies and stapling things and doing things that you just, you know, when you're at a big firm, you don't do those things, but we always have the model, you know, you never know when business is going to come in and there's times it all comes in at once and we all have to work late and, do things that we might not normally do, but it's get the job done. And I think the biggest surprise has been the joy that I've had and that, you know, I'm not working less, but I'm working more intentional. I have two daughters. Um, When I left the big firm, they were, I think, six and eight. And I knew that I wanted to see them grow up. And a big corporate Mm -hmm. environment was not probably the place that that was going to happen. And by starting my own firm, uh, we have 60 percent of our advisors are women and our whole motto is get the job done you know if you need if you want to go to your kids play or their sporting event go do it we know you'll get your job done you don't have to punch a card and we've given people the flexibility um you know our COO you know also has child one of our core values was to have fun along the way and I think that we've done that so those are kind of some of the surprises.
1: I do find it amusing, though, just relative to I guess I'll call it the like the traditional views of entrepreneurship and 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 building your own business of like the you know the time commitment and the work commitment and the rest. Like I I, I find it oddly ironic that you know, your your path to get more time with family was to like leave a large firm environment and go and hang your own shingle.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're always thinking about the job. And, and some of the best ideas are when you're away, you know, you're at the right. soccer field. And um, I always say that my daughter was probably one of our biggest uh, referral sources, because I think six or seven of the girls' parents that were on our soccer team are clients. So um, you just never know, as my dad always said, you know, everyone's a client, they just might not know it. And you never know where business comes from. And I think being true to yourself, being trustworthy, that's that's why people hire you. And being out there, you know, letting people know what you do.
1: So what was the low point of the journey for you?
2: You know, I'm a very positive, energetic person. Um, I, my background is my family had community banks and I went, my dad started a bank in 1962. I went to the family bank. We grew the bank and we ended up selling the bank. I became a uh, President of private banking for the group. It was US Bank, and we had five banks, um, but they ended up doing three mergers in two years. And I decided um, that I really wanted to get back to the more entrepreneurial spirit. So that's when I went to a large um, money management firm out of New York. So I left the banking business, went there. Uh, They were privately held as well. And uh, I think three or four years in, they got bought out by a large firm. (laughs) And I started thinking, um, you know, this, I was, you know, I wanted the entrepreneurial spirit. Obviously, I wanted the rewards of a privately held company. I hadn't been an owner yet. I had been there, you know, I I missed the boat on that. And so that was really a reflection time, um, you know, at the time. I was one of the few women there and, um, you know, it wasn't always understood, you know, the men went and golfed you know, if I wanted to go to a birthday party, you know, I had to take a vacation time. It was a different time. And I just realized that if I wanted to, and I couldn't control the investments. And if I wanted to control, I needed to to go on my own. And that's when, you know, Dave and I started talking about it. So it wasn't a low point, but it was a pivotal point um, in my career. And I think you know, through the years of starting this firm, you know, I just love growth and I wanted to, and there were many times where we didn't have the growth that we wanted to, and it, we had to take a hard look at things. And I think that was a big point mm-hmm. back in 18, where we had a, you know, the growth wasn't as strong as we wanted. And why was it? And maybe it's because we were, the principals were in the trenches and dealing with day to day too much. And maybe we needed to take a step back and how are we going to do that? And it seemed overwhelming and, you know, it took some time to really solidify this whole, process. But, um, you know, it's easy to get discouraged when things aren't going exactly the way that you want. And, you know, we've we've had we had a few tough hires along the way. Not everything always worked out. And in a small firm, when a hire doesn't work out, it it really drags down everyone. So I'd say along the way, you know, things weren't perfect. Um, Those hires are in better places and at better firms that are are better for them. And so, you know, everyone won on that. But, you know, there were some frustrations um, along the way. And, you know, when you were, uh, when we were very small, when we had like four or five people, you know, if one person left, it almost felt like the bricks were going to come tumbling down and, and right. we did have someone leave. Um, and that's going to happen. You know, not everyone's a lifer. And, you know, we, at the time, I think we only had two associates, you lose one associate, and that is a big drain. So those were some of the low points. But, you know, I feel really good going forward. We were always running behind on the staffing. We're kind of staffing for our growth now, as opposed to staffing when we think we're going to need it. Because if we find good people, we'd rather get them up and running and get ready for the growth.
1: So is there anything else you know now you wish you could have gone back and Told you from fifteen plus years ago when you were when you were getting launched originally about building a firm.
2: Um, I think patience because I'm not a patient person, and so um, sometimes I want to run before I can walk. So I think you know patience and that it's going to be a long ride. And a friend of mine once said this to me that um, you know that getting to the end result can sometimes be very difficult and very stressful. But when you get to the end, you realize um, that things really were worth it. Um, I think in the beginning, we were so anxious to take clients, we would take clients that really didn't fit our ideal client Mm. persona. So we would take people that we, you know, that really wanted to buy individual stocks, but we didn't quite hear that. And we thought we could convert them to the indexed approach. And they were just, you know, they wanted to do IPOs, they wanted us to buy individual stocks, and we just couldn't do it. Um, You know, we've learned that we want people to value our planning. If they just want someone to manage money, we're probably a little expensive for that and not the right person. So I think we've learned you know, we have the luxury now of making sure that they're the right fit in the beginning, we took clients below our minimum, you can always find an excuse why you need to take them. Oh, it's right. the aunt of my friend, it's the good referral source. And now we're really trying to be um, a little more stringent. And we have good people we can refer these clients to now. And so I think that was kind of a mistake, not a mistake, but things that I've learned that so- you really want clients to fit your ideal client.
1: So what what changed that you ultimately got more comfortable uh like not not taking the clients below your minimums?
2: You know, we just realized that sometimes, you know, we thought they were doing them a favor. They thought they were doing us a favor. And, yeah. you know, they it it started sometimes those are the clients that that really dragged a lot of your time. And we weren't quite set up to deal you know, to spend that much time. And we just thought that they might be better with another firm that really could deal better with clients, you know, at a lower minimum. And, you know, it's hard to really fully diversify and do our whole portfolio under a million, but it took a long time for us to kind of, we started at 500,000 and then we raised it to a minimum um, a million. And, you know, we do the Schwab surveys and I think it's pretty common, but when you look, you know, 20% 20% of your clients are giving you 80% of your revenue and then you you look at the you look at these clients um on the other end and we give a very um comprehensive value add to the clients and we just didn't think we could continue giving this to that many clients you know under the minimum so and it's hard cuz i want to help everyone but but they're better off at these other firms they're quality firms and i think they're better off there so
1: so, what advice would you give other younger, newer advisors getting started today?
2: Well, first of all, um, love what you do. So, make sure that this is what you love doing. Um, like you said, you know, as an entrepreneur and owning my business, even though you work all the time, it doesn't always feel like work. So, hope you know, make sure that this is the industry, and then you know, align yourself. It used to be that you wanted to go to these big firms. Um, but I really think the RIA is is where it's a great place to learn. It's a great place to get in front of clients a little easier. Uh, I tell um, our newer uh, associates it's never too early to just start networking, so make sure you you know keep in touch and keep with people. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing I learned uh, from my dad because I went with him and when I was really young, he was starting a new bank and we were selling the stock for the new bank. And often we'd meet with people and they would say no. And I'd say, aren't you discouraged? And he said, never be afraid of the no's. Because if there's a no, that means there'll be a yes around the corner. And I think sometimes new advisors get so scared of the no that they don't put themselves out there and they never get the yes. So my advice would be don't be afraid of the no's. So
1: this is a a podcast about success. And one of the themes that always comes up just the word success means very different things to different people. And so you you've been on this wonderful path for success and and the firm is, you know, now closing in on a billion dollars over the next few years. But I'm wondering how, how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: Yeah, I think it's that I wake up every day and love what I'm doing, and I feel that I am impacting lives. Uh, there's so many times that I meet with clients and they truly have tears in their eyes or thank us because they wanted to get out in '08 and they didn't, or they wanted to get out during COVID, or they didn't have proper planning, um, and they made some changes earlier in life. So, and you know, I want our employees to grow. I want happy employees. So I think success is That I wake up every day, love what I'm doing, that we add um, value and change some lives. And, you know, when we started the firm, we we wanted to work hard, but we also wanted a place that people wanted to come to, that people enjoyed um, coming to and, and having fun.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Thank you so much, Sherry, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Well, uh, thank you for having me. And I hope that you continue to maximize your return on life, Michael, which I think you do. So,
1: I I try. I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon.
2: Well, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me. I, I'm a big fan. So thank you.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.